Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by Focal Audio, the world's reference speaker. For over 30 years, Focal has been designing and manufacturing loudspeakers for the home, speaker drivers for cars, studio monitors for recording studios, and premium quality headphones. Visit Focal.com for more information. And now your hosts, Joey Sturges, Joe Wanasek, and Al Levy. Hey, 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 everyone. Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. Another brilliant episode here. I'm sure we've got a special guest with us, and I'm really excited to talk to him. I just want to let you guys know, you know, we're somewhat through here on July, and uh, thank you guys for continuing to listen. If you haven't yet, you can let your friends know that we're now available on iTunes. So if you're a paying subscriber and you've got a friend that isn't quite convinced, have them go check out the iTunes show. It's a year old, but still cool lots of good stuff in there and we talked to a lot of cool people i don't think that the information gets any less relevant no of course not i mean it's only a year old it's you know and we, we're pretty up to date on things with the music industry i i would assume i don't know <laughs> i i mean eqing a kick drum is eqing a kick drum whether it's uh 2015 or <laughs> 2005 1995 or 2016 i think yeah and if so. you guys have been listening to the show up to this point maybe you're a, a paying subscriber or something leave us a review on itunes it helps out a lot and we appreciate your support but uh moving on we've got a special guest with us here and uh, i'll let you introduce him al yeah we've got mr uh, justin coletti from uh, sonic scoop and also um in addition to being, I guess, one of the, to me, one of the most read writers on there, he's also a badass mastering engineer and engineer, works at Joe Lambert Mastering, which is a pretty amazing mastering house, and long list of credits, everything from Willie Nelson to Sugar Hill Gang has done front of house at all kinds of big venues in the New York area has written for a bunch of different magazines. I actually found out the other day that you also write non-music stuff. You just kind of seem to have the same affliction that we have, which is an overactive brain. Do you find that you have to do a million things just for your sanity, or is it something that you're doing because that's kind of what's required of people? in this day and age in the music industry? Well, I guess it's a little bit of both. I don't know if I'd be satisfied only thinking about music. I mean, I have this music component in my brain and I need to, to stimulate that. I need to be in front of speakers and be listening to music, usually for, for hours on end. But if I was only doing that, there's this uh, incredibly verbal part of my brain that you'll probably discover in the course of this, where if I wasn't doing something with that side of myself, I would be like half a person. It would, um, it's just there. You know, I come from, my father is probably a cross between like Woody Allen and Lieutenant Columbo. So, you know, I just come from very verbal people. So that kind of logical reasoning, you know, thinking part of my brain also needs to get turned on. And if I was just writing, I'd probably be pretty unhappy. And if I was just doing music, I'd probably be pretty unhappy, even though I, I love the both of them. And do you find that only writing... Well, clearly, you don't only write about music. So kind of answering my own question, I was going to say, do you find that 
writing about music stimulates enough of your brain? Um, well, I got to tell you, initially, I was really interested in just doing the kinds of stuff that you guys are doing, which really exploring some of my favorite producers and engineers and the way that you know they approach the craft. I was just learning to get better as a producer engineer, and that's what got me into the writing side. But from that, as you like you guys, I got more interested in the business side. How does this aspect of it work? And at a certain point, I realized I didn't even know what money is. I, I don't really know what stocks are. I didn't know any of this stuff, how we're supposed to kind of think about running a business, how we're supposed to think about making sustainable careers. So that was a rabbit hole I started going down. And once I started going down it, I just got more and more addicted. So it became like, I'm, I'm kind of a nerd. Like there's a lot of people in, in like uh, economics or finance who have a side hobby in music. And I'm like a music guy who has a side hobby in economics and finance and business, which is really <laughs> weird and nothing I ever expected as like a stoned out of his head kid in high school, you know? Well, it's interesting. I, I find that lots of the business stuff that when I was in high school, I would have found completely boring. Now I find totally fascinating and actually, in a weird way, really creative to work on. Oh, yeah. Oh, my goodness. When you start studying this stuff, you realize that um, business, economics, that kind of stuff, it's not about money and numbers. It's about uh, human motivations, uh, what people value, what they value compared to other things. And if you're only thinking about business, economics, all that stuff in the context of money, then you're doing it wrong. That, that's my take anyway. I completely agree. Well, if you're thinking about it only in terms of money, you're thinking about it, I think, more in a, either in an abstract way or a purely selfish way. And that doesn't, that, that doesn't really work in the grand equation. The grand equation in which I guess the goal would be to stimulate somebody to spend money on something, you know, to create business for something you have to move them enough. You need to provide them with something that moves them enough to actually open their wallet and spend money on it. And uh, especially in tougher economic times, that's much more of a challenge. And you have to be very, very creative and really, really think about what are they going to get out of this that's going to actually make their life better. Oh, absolutely, and, man. And that's tough and yeah. fun. And creative. It's interesting. Music is so much about communication, right? First and foremost, I mean, we, we do it to please ourselves to, to a great degree, but it's also communication. There's someone else at the other end of that. And if you don't respect that, you're not respecting half of what music is about. You know, you were communicating emotion, we're communicating values, we're communicating feelings, and sometimes ideas through music. And to discount that whole half of it, that there's a receiver on the other side who you're trying to engage and have that person say, you know what, I value this. I don't just value enough to, to say, oh, that's cool. I valued enough that I am going to sacrifice something else in my life so I can have more of this. I'm going to have less of something else so that I can show my appreciation for how great this is. You actually had a, a video just this morning. I was checking out your, your Facebook page, y'all, which, uh, which I dig. I think there's a lot of great stuff on there. And you posted Thanks. a video from trying to remember who it was, but the guy was basically going... I know what you're talking about. I Well, I just found him yesterday, uh, so I'm looking up his name now so that we can promote him because I had never heard of him until last night. He goes by Wang, <laughs> exclamation point. <laughs> W-H-A-N-G, exclamation point. The video, if I'm wrong about this, tell me I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure you're talking about the why your friends support celebrities yep. and not you. That's the yep. one. Great video. 
and it's only got 420 views so hopefully this helps get the views up but yeah go on sorry didn't mean to interrupt you there oh no i was uh, if anything I, I think maybe you could set it up even better than me but the guy basically came out saying if you're complaining that your friends don't come out and support your music but when some celebrity comes out with their big album they go and support that you know what that's kind of because they value what that celebrity is doing and maybe just maybe you're not offering them something yet that they value enough to say, I'm willing to give up other things in my life for this. And if anything, that should be inspiring. You should look at other people. I'm not saying to, you know, be celebrity obsessed or think you have to be, you know, uh, Jay-Z or, or something like that. If that's not who you are. But just that idea of being able to inspire someone to crack open their wallet and say, I could do other things with these resources, but what you're doing is so awesome in and of itself. I want it for me. Um, and that's really the goal is to inspire people to that level. And ideally you're doing that in a way that's true to yourself and true to your own values. Cause if you don't, I'd, I have no idea how you'd be able to sustain it. Well, you, the, the reason you have to be true to your values is because if you're not, you're not going to make it through the tough times. True story. You're going to burn out. And everyone I know who's gotten into music for the wrong reasons has filtered out. Oh yeah. I mean, you know, here and there. Okay. I take that back here and there. There are some people who, you know, s somehow lucked out. I'm talking like one in a thousand or something. But like most people I know who get in for the wrong reasons, they filter out because they can't hang through the tough times. Like you have to be in it for what you're for the, you know, not to sound like a cheese ball, but for whatever change you're trying to create in the world, that's what you have to be in it for. And then the money becomes a byproduct. It's it's almost a, uh, a symptom of the good that you're creating. Yeah. There's one guy I really like, a producer engineer named Joel Hamilton. Maybe you know him, Studio G. I think the way he uh, described to me once was the money is almost like a report card. And that kind of stuck with me. I see it that way. Joe, what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I feel like there's always two ways to look at this kind of stuff. You can look at it as like an art form and a passion, or you can look at it as like a business or numbers or analytics or whatever. And I think, you know, nowadays those things are kind of blending and blurring together a lot. And it takes a good understanding of a little bit of both to really survive now. I think it's really important. And, and hopefully like the kind of things that we do help people understand those, uh, the importance of that, or at least start to understand, you know, Go and learn how oh, to yeah. file an LLC. Go and learn how to uh, file your taxes and those kind of things because the public school systems aren't doing a very good job. Of oh, my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> well, you guys are doing a great job. I, I have to admit, uh, I hadn't heard the podcast until you invited me on. I was very familiar with both of you guys, but I didn't know there was a podcast. I went and checked it out. I've been listening to it on iTunes, and I've learned stuff from each of, I think, the four episodes I've listened to in a row right now. I put you oh, guys wow. on double nice. speed because uh, I'm a New Yorker, and I'm weird like that. So I'm listening to you guys at New York speed, and I hope uh, <laughs> if anyone's listening to this at double speed, they're probably... Uh, have no idea what's going on, unfortunately. But um, so I, I listened to a bunch of episodes and I'm like, oh man, I think I started with the one you guys did with Finn McKenty, which was great. And yeah, um, he, we love Finn, yeah. by the way. He's a great dude. Oh, absolutely. The one other thing I touch on that I think you're speaking to really well, Joey, and this is something I wrote about a little bit in the past. I have a couple of posts on this idea of in defense of the amateur. Like we've made amateur a dirty word, right? Like it sounds to people like, oh, you're an amateur. You don't know what you're doing. 
I think that's nonsense. I mean, if you do not want to do this stuff for money, for a sustainable career where you're getting paid to continue doing this, that makes you an amateur. An amateur means, this, the root of the word is lover. It means one who loves, one who does something for love. And that's awesome. And the one thing I do want to discourage people from is if you are doing this just as a lover and you do not care about whether or not it's a sustainable career, then then money should not be your metric. And anything we talk about relating to money is nonsense. But that said, if you are committed to being a professional and you're not using income and expenses as one of your metrics, then you're failing there. So it's really you're important. Fucked, yeah. basically. Yeah. So it's important to know your goals, right? That's the biggest thing. What's your goal? Is it for it to be a sustainable career or is it enjoyment? And then go full throttle, like believe in that goal. Do that. But, but don't pretend you're in one or the other when, when, when that's not what you want to do. Well, I think that the, uh, the whole amateur thing is not being a dirty word is a new concept um, in in music at least sure. that I think over the next 10 years is going to it, I think that the shift into it being normal is going to gradually take place over the next 10 years I think because the home recording revolution you know it's opened up the the field to a lot of people who just want to do this for a hobby and that's perfectly fine like you said and anyone listening to this who who wants to do that we we love you too and want to help you get better as well and more power to you i sure. mean in some ways that's i kind of i kind of envy that <laughs> but <laughs> But, you know, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, if you're not looking at money as a metric, you're failing because the electric company is. Right. And the, IR, the IRS is. Yeah. And your credit card bill isn't going, you know, you don't pay your credit cards off with Facebook shares. I, I can't do my rent and exposure. That's not a thing now. I thought I had all <laughs> these exposure coupons. What am I going to do with them? I just want to uh, kind of add on this the statement that you can't be adventurous when you're guarding your wallet. And I think there's a certain level of risk that a risk taking that has to be involved here and be being willing to just kind of explore music as, as an art form and, and not really caring what the repercussions are. There's been many times where I've been in dangerous situations uh, financially, but you know, it always came out in the end. You always figure something out. It can get scary at times, but I yeah, think it's, absolutely. you know, you got to be willing to kind of stretch your neck out a bit. Well, one thing on that that I, I'd suggest is I've been able to take more and more risks the more financially secure I, I've gotten. And I didn't start out as extremely financially secure uh, at all. You know, I don't come from a wealthy background. I didn't go to a fancy college. I didn't have a lot of high paying jobs. I was just a freelancer in audio. And I found, though, that the more that I've gotten that part of my life just together, so I don't have to worry about it as much, the more risks I feel like I can take. Take, right, because it's almost like once you've given yourself a literal safety net, then you can say no to things you don't want to do more often, and you can stick your neck out and do something on spec for less than you should be doing it for because you believe it might turn into something. Or you can just take some time away and say, one of the reasons I'm interested in being somewhat financially secure is so that I can do other things in my life that I value too. So I, I totally agree that not everything you should do be dictated by how much money can I make off of this. I mean, that's a that's just a bad way to live, but. But there's that flip side where having the degree of financial security allows you to go and say, well, you know, since I'm, I've taken care of myself, I have the freedom to do the things I want now. And that, that can become huge. And it can only happen, I think, in small steps uh, at first. And then it just becomes habit. Well, I think that the, uh, 
I look at freedom as two things. Freedom from and freedom to do. Mm. And uh, I feel like financial security gives you freedom from doing lots of the things you don't want to do, but you're always going to have to do stuff you don't want to do. But (laughs) freedom from spending eight hours a day uh, in something that sucks your soul dry, for instance. And then freedom to take risks to create the life you want to create. So I, I feel like another thing that I hope changes in music is this so you know we we're talking about how amateur is a dirty word i hope that financial education stops being a dirty concept in oh, music yeah. and it was to me i get it when i first started learning about this stuff i almost felt guilty like yeah. researching what money was and how stocks work and you know uh, budget like all of these were things that I wasn't supposed to be into because I'm an artsy, culture guy. And I've just, that's nonsense. That's limiting a belief. I mean, would you suggest that people who are into things that are not music limit themselves and say, don't be into music too? That's ridiculous. So why are we saying the opposite to ourselves? It, there's two thoughts that I have here on the amateur thing. I hope you don't mind if I rant for just a second. No, on this rant idea. away. That's what this is for. But the first one is that sometimes professionals almost feel... Uh, competition from people who are amateurs who are doing it out of love and love doing it, love sharing it with their friends, aren't necessarily trying to make, you know, a sustainable income at. They feel like that's competition. I think that's, that's nonsense. I mean, the home recording setup of the 21st century is like the home piano of the 19th century or the early 20th century. Do you think concert pianists went, those people with pianos at home, they're going to kill the pianoing business? It's ridiculous. I mean, <laughs> they're your best audience. They're the people who are most interested. If you're a concert pianist, you're saying, oh my goodness, more people are interested in pianos. That's awesome. I'm a concert pianist. Like, shouldn't we be thinking that way? Like, amateurs are not our enemies. We need them. Without people who just love, there are no professionals. There's no professionals being supported if there aren't people who are just loving and making their uh, their money, bringing in resources in some other way. Without that, we're nothing. So that's a huge thing to remember to keep professionals humble. And then the second thing to remember is that, you know, you can be guides to these people and amateurs shouldn't, you know, feel contemptuous of professionals or feel that professionals are elitists because ideally the professionals are leading the lovers to explore their craft in an even deeper way and take it to a higher level. And it's supposed to be the symbiotic win-win relationship. And we've got to see it that way or else we're, we're kind of doomed. I mean, when the professionals and the the lovers are enemies, you wind up in the scenario where you have people uh, enjoying music, downloading it, taking it for free, and feeling completely morally justified and not paying anybody for it. But as long as you are able to have that symbiotic relationship and the professionals realize they're delivering a service to the lovers and the lovers realize that, you know, the professionals are delivering something that they honestly value and that they want to see more of, then you get this thing where each group is enhancing the lives of the other group. And I I think that's a huge, huge thing that we've gotten away from and hopefully we'll get back to. That's really, really interesting. Um, I completely agree. And I love the analogy with the uh, concert pianists because in the end, Cream will always rise to the top. Sure. I hope so. Uh, I think so. (laughs) I I feel like it still does. I mean, I don't normally see someone that's absolutely world-class who gets no... uh, no chance ever like that i feel like that's a complete myth like you i don't i'm not used to seeing like 
a Guthrie Govan level guitar player who nobody acknowledges, not in this day and age. Normally, what I've noticed is when there's a, a band or an artist that's super talented who just can't seem to like make things happen, it's not because they're not getting a chance, it's because they're dysfunctional <laughs> fuck-ups. Up, fuck um, yeah. I, I feel like, in, like uh, for the most part, if you're awesome and you're not a psycho, the, the opportunities will eventually present themselves. And you'll you'll get a shot, and uh, I do feel like cream rises to the top exactly because people love the craft so much, and they communicate so much, and they love talking about it so much. You put those three things together that uh, when they have their minds blown by how awesome somebody is or uh, how good a mix is, whatever it is that they're talking about, that stuff spreads like wildfire. So I, I don't think that professionals really need to worry about that. They need to worry about being great and having a great relationship with their audience. I hear you, yeah. That's my take on it. So, you know, switching gears a little bit, I'm just wondering, um, how do you balance your life then? Because it seems like you're always doing something. And I know that audio work is very mentally taxing. At least it is for me and just about everybody else I know. Like, it's hard to work on records and then go do other things like but you're always pumping stuff out like how do, how does that work there's a couple things i'd say i mean the first off is that for me writing is a great way to recuperate from too much music and too much music is a great way to recuperate from too much writing so there kind of really is a trade off there but the other thing that i'd say is i i actually i feel very guilty cuz People have told me in my life, oh my goodness, it looks like you're doing so much. You're editing this, you're writing all these articles. At certain points, I was writing like 16,000 words a month, like, you know, eight articles a month or something. And, Jesus. and they would be pretty long ones. And then I was doing records at the same time. And people would say, how are you doing all this? And I get that it looks impressive, but half of my time, honestly, is spent sitting around reading the internet and reading books and saying, oh my God, I accomplished nothing today. Oh goodness. Oh no, I have done absolutely nothing worthwhile today. And I think because I have that paranoid uh, overcritical part of my brain is why I do anything. So it doesn't feel, it never to me feels like I'm being productive enough. I always feel like I'm not doing as much as I could. And if you feel that way, that is normal. I feel like that is like, you're going to have imposter syndrome no matter what. It's just a thing that exists. Realize, I think that I heard someone say it very well recently. I wish I could remember who to attribute the quote to, but he said, people always overestimate how much they can do in a day, but they underestimate how much they can do in a year. And that just sent chills down me because I, I really got in my bones uh, that idea that we, we overestimate how much we can do in a day and we underestimate how much we can do in a week, in a month, in a season. And um, to a degree, you've got to ride yourself a little bit to get anything done. But more practically, the way that I split things is I pretty much spend half of my week uh, writing and editing and doing running Sonic Scoop stuff. I'm kind of the managing editor there. I started as being a, a writer. I wrote my first three articles for free. Then they started paying me to, they said, could you do one a month? We'll give you money. And I said, wow, okay, sure, great. And they said, these are doing really well. Can you do two a month? We'll give you more money. I said, well, this is weird. Okay, awesome. And then they said, can you do one a week? And then I started my own publication and it kind of grew from there. And now I kind of run the place. But I spend, I would say, half my week, about three days running running Sonic Scoop, and about half my week, about three days, just mastering records. And 
For me, I like that balance. I would say that for many people, a bit more specialization makes a lot of sense. But for me, I, I like that back and forth. So I'd say I, I generally work about six days a week, three days on mastering, three days on the editorial stuff. But within that, I also have a lot of freedom. Like I can take a walk for an hour and a half or two hours in the middle of the afternoon if I want to. You know, I sit down, I get to have lunch with my fiance wife in a, in a week every day. You know, so I have a lot of freedom within that. There are six days where I've got to get something done. And I give myself that one day where I say, no, you're not allowed to do anything. Because I feel like if you don't schedule in downtime, the downtime is going to schedule itself in and it's, it's a lot less convenient. At least that's what I found for myself by uh, you know, trying and failing and sometimes succeeding at being productive. I find that if you don't take the time away, it'll make it happen for you and you're going to feel worse. Well, yeah, because it'll show up in the form of burnout. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's that's actually, that's a really great point. Because, for instance, uh, it's just like with sleep. If you try to be a Superman, and, and I've done this, so I'm speaking from experience here, you try to not sleep at night and just be like, I can work 20 hours and sleep mm-hmm. four Eventually, you're going to have two days straight where you sleep 16 hours a day to make up <laughs> for, for all the other days that you didn't sleep. Been there. Yeah. Uh, Joe, you've been there, too, I know. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I know. You've got, I mean, you, you're, you're kind of crazy like me with your sleep, but you, uh, you seem to have normalized lately. You know, I think there's phases to it. I mean, I don't know how much we want to talk about sleep, but I'll say, like, I, I discovered something recently, which I think was was interesting, is that I feel like my my uh, experiments in staying up late happen in the summertime because the sun stays out longer and it takes longer for it to get dark. And then in the winter, it's kind of the opposite. At least that's when I started to fix my schedule in the winter and the sun was going down at 6 p.m. You know, it's like by 9 or 10, you're like, you know, the sun's been down for four hours and it <laughs> feels like you're, you've been awake too long. So I, I, that's when I started to fix my schedule. But I noticed that kind of um, putting yourself on a schedule and shutting down at a, you know, at least by midnight every day kind of sets you up for success because, you know, for me, I'll, I'll go to sleep and I'll be over it in like six hours. I'm like, I don't need any more sleep. Like I'm I'm done with this. Let's go on to something else. <laughs> Had enough of this sleep shit. Yeah. <laughs> and I'll wake up and just be like, all right, cool. Let's, let's, uh, let's go to work. There's nothing else to do. It's really early. Nobody's awake. So it, I, it kind of motivates me in a way. I've, uh, I've started to normalize by tracking my sleep. I've noticed that if I can track it and I can see it on the screen, how many hours I got, it forces me to sleep a little longer. And also, if I can see what hours I went to bed and woke up, it forces me to try to, like, get my shit together and not go to bed at 9 in the morning. So, <laughs> it's, but, but yeah, speaking of back, back about scheduling and downtime and the way that works for you, did you always take one day off, or is that something you had to train yourself to do? I definitely trained myself into trying to make it a consistent day. And one of the things that helped there was having a uh, you know a significant other who has a specific day off where if I don't have the same day off as her, I'm 
practically, you know, never going to get a seer in, in a context that isn't just we're eating lunch, we're eating dinner. So I think that's what kind of forced me to set a specific day that I always take off, which for me is uh, ended up being uh, Fridays is try is kind of like the day of the week that I always try to take off. And yeah, having that rhythm in the week has been helpful, like because just things take structure around it. And once you've claimed one day of the week for yourself, I know how hard it is to claim a day of the week for yourself when you're starting off as a freelancer and you think you have to be super responsive and grab any gig that comes your way. I've gotten to the point where I can just say no. Like if someone wants me to work on that day of the week, that's my day off. um, I just say, no, sorry, I can't do it. And I can turn down the money. But also, I think most of the people who want to work with me uh, at this point want to work with me specifically enough that they respect that and they just say, okay, what's another day? But I get that when you're young, it's hard to do that. All that I'd say is part of the reason of getting a sustainable career together where you have a diversified, you know, uh, sources of income together is to be able to allow that freedom in your life and claim the structure that you want to claim so you can be free inside that structure you create for yourself. Guys, we should start like a life coaching blog. This is awesome. (laughs) (laughs) I'm down. (laughs) Yeah, so am I. We, We talk about this stuff uh, somewhat regularly. We're all into this stuff because it's like if you have big dreams, and we encourage big dreams, we're all big dreamers here, and we've all accomplished a lot of our big dreams, so we know that it's a doable thing. And we also have lots of friends who have accomplished you know, things that are seemingly impossible or completely unrealistic. But the one thing that I've noticed from doing a bunch of these and talking to a ton of amazing people is that they all kind of share this... Um, I guess this focus and this hypersensitivity to how their life is unraveling, meaning like how many days they do this, how many days they don't do that, how much on time versus downtime, like all these things, like how much energy they have, what habits give them more energy, what habits take their energy away, what's the important stuff to focus on, what's the dumb stuff to focus on. Uh, they all share the, a focus on that stuff. Some articulate it better than others, but across the board, Everyone I know who's done great things thinks about this shit. It's true, man. And that's the sneaky thing is habits work even if you don't know how to articulate that you have these habits, you know? Even if it's something that you don't talk about or are bored talking about or don't know how to communicate. I mean, habits are so powerful that you don't need to know how they work. You don't need to know how to describe them or explain them for them to work. They just do. But it's huge. I mean, I think one of my favorite Aristotle quotes uh, uh, is on this. And I think he says, uh, this is probably one that maybe you've hopefully seen hanging on a wall somewhere in your life. It is, uh, we are what we repeatedly do. Excellence, then, is not an act, but a habit. Something along those lines. I hope I'm not paraphrasing, but uh, that's a huge thing, man. You it's true. create wheel ruts in your life that uh, then you can just barrel down at lightning speed. It's, it's huge. Well, the, the cliche that... Uh his worst day is better than, you know, whoever's best day comes, you know what I'm talking about? Like, oh, yeah. uh, you see a great guitar player and it's like, he was having an off night and it's like, yeah, well his off night is still levels beyond my best night. I think that that comes from the quote that you just yeah. gave, whether you paraphrase it or not, that Excellence is habit, not an act. It's something you do every day. And, of course, being human, there's going to be ebb and flow 
you know, uh, peaks and valleys uh, because some days we just perform like shit at whatever <laughs> we do. It, it just is what it is. But, uh, you know, we're talking about an average level of performance. The habit enables your average level to be higher. Yeah, I can definitely say that my like worst days now are better than some of my best days when I was just shittier at everything, which was definitely a time in my life when I was shittier at everything that I'm okay at now. Well, you know, speaking of that, like, I want to ask you about writing because, um, you know, you're writing, you said 16,000 words a month at one point. I've gone down a little bit since then, but mostly because I want to focus on kind of curating and developing other writers who come to me. So I'm probably still working with at least that many words or more, but I'm not the one writing them uh, anymore. I do have to admit that the writing takes a lot more of it out of me than does the editing. I mean, generating, doing the creative act is much, much uh, more trying than the kind of editing and tweaking other people's stuff. But right now, what I'm really trying to do is curate kind of other voices on the site. So it's not just the me show, you know. I, I, there are a lot of, you know, influential bloggers and writers who I really respect, and it's just them, basically. But that's not what I want or ever intended Sonic Scoop to be. I mean, it's supposed to be something that it's forum-like in the sense that you're getting a diversity of voices. It, it, it shows respect to, like, the tape-op style of doing things, or the way that you guys are doing things on your podcast, in that it's meant to have many different voices, but also at a kind of a certain high level of standard where you're going to come on, you're going to read something, and you're going to know it's going to be somewhat curated or vetted for relevance, accuracy, readability, all that stuff. So I'm not sure if I'm answering the question at all right now, but I was writing up to that much when I was just writing for Sonic Scoop and then also writing on my other blog, which was then the facetiously titled, Trust Me, I'm a Scientist. And now <laughs> I'm just editing uh, mostly other people's stories and I'll try to do at least one feature a month myself, um, usually a big fish that I, I'm, I'm really after. And otherwise, I'm trying to work on ideas with others. Well, that wasn't the question, but it totally Sorry. explains why. Oh, it's okay. It totally explains why Sonic Scoop is good. That's It's interesting because that's one of the few music blogs out there that actually do maintain a very high level of quality. I appreciate um, that. Where, you know, when you go on there, you're not going to be reading some just bullshit. Uh, and there's a lot of that out there about audio. Oh, um, yeah. Well, it's God, there's so much terrible information out there. So, you know, when you find one of those sites that you don't find bullshit on, it stands out. But what I was wondering was when I guess when you were at that level of output, it, did you get there gradually or was it like I must produce this amount? Like how did how did you get to that level? Because that's a lot of yeah, output. I think it gradually got to the level of I must write this amount uh, in that. I guess what I was doing is, like I said, I started writing one article a month, and uh, I think I did my first three articles for free for Sonic Scoop. I don't even make any of my new writers do three articles for free anymore. That was just me. It was a tiny blog back then. I met some people at a party, and I said, oh, yeah, I'd, I'd love to try writing. So I tried writing for them. And then after doing three of those, they had me do one a month, and it were, was 
really took all of the spare time I could get to actually get one a month out. But after doing that for a few months, like my bandwidth increased, you know? So then they started having me do two a month. And I said, yeah, sure, why not? And from that, my bandwidth increased. And I started doing three a month. They asked me to do more. And then they started asking me to do four a month. And one a week was pretty taxing on me, especially since I was still doing audio stuff at the same time. But then after doing that for a few months, my bandwidth increased. And all of a sudden I said, you know, I have more to give. I have more that I can do. There are still ideas I want to explore that I don't think are right in the context of Sonic Scoop, but uh, maybe they're too controversial or too, uh, my own opinion, or too nerdy and research focused. And I did those on my own site and I started doing four a month on my own site. And then that grew really quickly to the point where it had, you know, almost half as many readers as Sonic Scoop. And after a while, I kind of saw that I would get to that place of burnout and that I also was it was too much just me and my voice. And that's when I started pairing back and bringing up other people's contributions and limiting mine to a degree. So if you had started out saying, I'm going to produce this insane amount of content, you may have never even gotten there. Oh, never. Oh, goodness. No. Yeah. I I think that that's interesting to note for people. Well, if you look at the top, you know, look at a, a mountain, you know, it's like, Oh, it's a lot of work to get up there. <laughs> but but in reality, it's all just, you know, one step at a time. <laughs> yep. All the way. <laughs> all one step at a time for a long time. Yeah. But that's that's all anything really is. I mean, it that, that's something that I think we talked about on forget where we talked about this, but basically the idea was that, you know, you have all these people thinking, oh, I got to go get a a big building and I got to get a console and then I've got to install all these walls a special way and I got to get this speaker set up like this and I got to do it. And they do that before they ever play a note on the guitar. And it's like, no, there's, there's a way to, to ease into this industry, you know, start with a laptop, then move to a computer, start in a bedroom, then go to a, a building like one thing at a time. Oh, absolutely. Can I rant on that for just a second? Yeah, please. Dude, rant. Oh, man. The music industry and the recording studio world does not operate on an if-you-build-it-they-will-come basis. There is absolutely none of that. Um, <laughs> at all. Yeah, it is not Field of Dreams here. It is not like, wow, there is a place now that has gear in it. Like, no shit. There is places that have gear. <laughs> if anything, there's way more places that have gear in them than the world needs or will ever, or ever need. What, what is needed are people who can make the most out of those resources, who can, you know, utilize them. And if anything, when you're starting out, there are all these underutilized resources around you. And first, figure out how to tap into that. And yeah, the underutilized resource may be, at first, your bedroom and your laptop. But the underutilized resource may then be someone else's studio that you can do some work out of. And you'll just find more and more places where you can kind of scale things up in a sustainable way. Yeah, it it is really about getting into it gradually, bit by bit, and at each level, like succeeding and crushing that level so you can move on to the next one. If you try to get too far ahead of yourself, um, you're going to have a bad time. Uh, maybe yeah. it has worked for some people in life, but uh, most success stories are a bit more gradual than uh, people want them to be. I've seen people constructing a studio and recording a session. Like the walls aren't done and the there's power drills in the floor and there's paint like everywhere and they're recording songs already. Like that's the proper way to, <laughs> to really approach it, I feel. One of the ways that you know that it's not about the gear and uh, it's about what people do with the gear is that studios don't normally get sold off as, you know, to like 
the way that you sell a business, you know? Like you grow a business to a certain point and then hopefully you can sell it to a bigger company, right? Yeah. Cash out. But studios, like when you hear about these studios closing or whatever, it's not like they sold their studio to Sony or something, right? And then Sony took over the business. No, they're closing out to become condominiums or or whatever. Like there's no value in that studio anymore. Yeah. Without the people who are running it, it's just a you know, a glorified showroom. If there was actual value in the room full of gear, then you would see the sales happening the way that you see it in other businesses when a business gets sold. Yeah. It wouldn't just be closing down. You're right, man. I got to say that um, this is one of the things that initially annoyed me. I, I hate to rag on anything, but I'm going to rag on one thing. Uh, I think there's value in this thing that I'm going to rag on, but the thing that annoyed me about Gear Sluts and made me want to start Sonic Scoop to a degree is just how obsessed people were with the equipment. Like, it's the equipment that makes great records. And... I mean, obviously, great, yeah, great gear is great, and there's actually, you know, some bright people occasionally on gear slots, I guess, um, sometimes. Uh, but I, I just didn't like that focus of it being about the tools and about the stuff. To me, it just seems so obvious. People are what creates the value, and tools are what enable them to do it better. And we've really got to focus on the people and the output, what's actually being created, whether anyone wants what's being created. And then there's that tricky little break in our industry where some people want this stuff, yeah. they really value it, and they're not paying for it only because that's an option. And it's an option both currently pretty much legally and uh, ethically. Like people have this switch in their heads that says, I'm not hurting anyone. I'm sticking it to the man by taking the stuff that I really enjoy and not recompensating anyone. And that's not sticking it to the man. You're sticking it to the people yeah. who you really love. I mean, the man's going to be fine. The man's going to do great. You cannot pay musicians up the wazoo. Man's not hurting. Who's hurting are the musicians who you say that you love and trust and respect and value. So for me, it really comes down to the people. That's the huge thing. The art, the creation, the techniques, the taste, all that's huge. And then gear is this fun, additional, yeah. awesome thing that helps keep you inspired and helps you do things that maybe you couldn't do before. But when you focus first on the tools, you're just going about it backwards, in my view. We talk about this shit all the time. Joey is, uh, you know, an all-in-the-box dude. I'm a hybrid guy. And Joel, our other host, who's in Russia right now, he's more analogy than either of us. But Still, regardless, we all we just push this idea all the time that it's not the gear, uh, it's the human being. Um, because a lot of our listeners, when they come in as beginners, they get over-focused on whatever the latest shiny um, amp sim is or piece of gear or plug-in or, you know... Uh, super complicated processing technique that they read about somewhere that sounds really sexy like MS processing or something. All this stuff <laughs> that uh, is definitely cart before the horse and we spend a lot of time trying to get people to focus on the basics and what's really really important. We've had a lot of success stories with guys who have gotten their thinking straight and then started to work on their hearing and their EQ skills and basic compression skills who then started to get a lot better and then gradually started adding in more plugins, more complex processing and 
are doing very well for themselves now, but it all starts with the basics, and we really, really try to hammer that home. So I applaud you for saying that, and I applaud you for using that as an inspiration for your site because I can't stand that community either. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there are two very important motivating factors in humanity. One of them is love and the other is hate. And maybe hate is a strong word, but you have to have some sense of what you feel is missing, you know, who you feel is underserved, what messages aren't getting out to the degree that they ought to get out. And like that lack of fulfillment is going to be an inspiring thing. Like you're never going to be inspired only by love. You're going to be inspired also by, ah, man, this really, we can't do better than this. So that's, that's a huge thing. One last thing I'd love to, to add to this, and I hope this isn't a total non sequitur, but I think it ties into the two of the things we've been talking about. One is that idea of back to basics and what's really important. And the other idea is that of, you know, selling your music to end consumers or selling whatever service it is that you might provide to end consumers. I think one thing that we're, I really see some damaging Uh, rhetoric in the music industry sometimes is about this high-res stuff. I'm going to probably rustle some feathers or ruffle some feathers here. I think it's it's jimmies that get rustled. They'll rustle some jimmies. Do you mean like Tidal? Yeah, it's the whole idea of that the problem with music is that we need higher-res sound, which I think is ridiculous on two levels. First of all, you take 320 kilobit per second MP3s and stuff, and you compare that to any higher-resolution format, and pretty much no one ever under, even these golden-eared engineers under blind listening conditions, when it's double-blind, have ever been able to tell the difference. And I know there's at least one person reading right now, or listening right now who's saying to themselves, no, I've heard the difference. And I have felt in my bones so many differences that I knew were there, where all of a sudden the blindfold goes on and those differences you could feel in your bones disappear. And this is because as, as powerful as our perception might be, the stories we tell ourselves are even more powerful. Uh, there's this great study about giving people wine out of two different bottles. Um, they give people a bottle of wine, uh, a glass of wine out of a $20 bottle, a glass of wine out of a $200 bottle. They say, try both. Which one do you like better? Something like 85% of people prefer the glass of wine from the $200 bottle. Of course, it turns out in the end that both of the glasses are from the same damn bottle. <laughs> uh, Penn and Teller did this with yeah. water. The artisan, they did artisan water versus like, you know, they had different levels of water and it was all the same water. Yep. And the waiter's just coming out and saying, okay, now this water, this water comes from a glacier and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And tells his little story about every glass of water. It's all just coming from the hose in the back of the restaurant. (laughs) And this is not to say that subtle differences don't exist. Subtle differences do exist. As a mastering engineer, I spend all this time listening for subtle differences. Some of these changes may make a difference, and some of these changes really might not make as much of a difference as we uh, want to believe for ourselves. But I spend all this time listening for subtle differences. But we also can't deny that there are differences that don't exist that we'll hear anyway because of a good story. And uh, I'm not saying that no one will ever be able to tell a 320 kilobit per second MP3 from a higher resolution. Just I've never seen it done yet by any one individual in a double-blind trial. So the one thing I want to argue is that when we tell music consumers, oh, the problem are those MP3 pieces of shit you've been listening. We can curse on this blog, right? Yeah. Okay, good. Uh, I'm sorry I keep on referring to it as a blog. Anyway, on this podcast, 
the problem, the only reason that the uh, Unstoppable Recording Machine podcast doesn't have more listeners is because, man, this MP3 shit sucks. That's the problem. The problem is your file formats. And here's the thing. If you're not listening to the most deluxe file format possible, then what you have is shit, and you shouldn't be paying for it. Now, what the music listener hears is, oh, so these files are so shitty that I can feel justified in not paying for them. That's what they hear. They don't hear, oh, I should go out and spend hundreds of dollars more per music uh, per unit on music I should feel justified in not paying for this shitty shit that you're giving me where in, in reality if you compare uh, even uh, iTunes 256 kilobit standard to any other consumer medium ever made in the history of the universe it is demonstrably better I mean here's the thing you can put people down and have them do a blind test between a CD and a tape cassette they're going to hear the difference trained listeners you give me a CD and a vinyl record I'm going to know the difference you give me you know a full resolution playback and you give me uh, even 15 ips tape, which I love doing, I can hear the difference. The reason I use tape is because it makes it sound different, not because it's totally transparent. Compared to all of these formats, even this tape that we love, 256 kilobit per second, you know, straight up iTunes MP3 is demonstrably closer to the sound of the original source than any of these other formats. 8-track, AM radio, FM radio, uh, tape machines, vinyl records. That's not to say it's necessarily better. It's not to say that there isn't something beautiful about the coloration of all of these older consumer formats. All that I'm saying is, oh my goodness, a little bit of perspective. You're telling people who have the cheapest, easiest to use, most convenient, and demonstrably one of the best sounding consumer formats of all time. Oh my goodness, you compare an MP3 to AM radio, it, it kills it in fidelity to the original recording. And you're telling people that this is shit that they shouldn't be paying for. Shame on you. I mean, that is what is ruining the music industry, telling the, uh, listeners it's okay not to pay for music. And they're not going for, let's spend you know $80 on an album because there's extra needless bits. No, but if you told them, this is a great format. It's one of the best formats we've ever had. It's essentially a non-issue. And if you want something higher, that's great. But the most important thing is if you really value this music, you know, show respect to the people who made it. Be selfish. Give them money because you want them to do more of this great stuff. I mean, that's the story I think we should be telling to fans and listeners. And I think that's the way to connect with them, not shaming them about the, you know, the music and the formats they enjoy listening to every day of their lives. I completely agree. I never actually thought about it like that. So thanks for ranting i enjoyed that rant that's actually kind of that's that's one of the uh most that's one of those things that uh you're saying it and it's like so obvious it's like how did i not think of this already but you're i feel like you're absolutely right the language that we use and the story we're telling is actually part of what's devaluing music and it's forcing people to think about dumb things like format instead of the content that's on the format and seeing the uh, the intellectual property as what's valuable. So thank you. And with that, I think uh, we're right up at the time where we have to call this. So Mr. Justin Coletti, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, if you want to... Uh, to read Justin's uh, fine writings, go to sonicscoop.com. And where else can they go to find you? Oh, you can find uh, some more of my stuff on justincoletti.com. I've got a blog there where I try to write about the non-music stuff, which is mostly my dorky look at uh, uh, financial markets, economics, and kind of the philosophy underlying them. It's really very easy for kind of basic, for, for everyday people to understand. Uh, I think that there's 
too much uh, black arts and voodoo put around, you know, finances and economics. And it's really much more philosophical. So I write about that stuff on JustinColetti.com and my blog there sometimes. But the lion's share of what I do is writing on Sonic Scoop, editing articles for Sonic Scoop. If anyone's listening to this and they have a pitch for a story that they really want to tell the world or someone that they really want to interview, we're always looking for contributors. Al has contributed. Uh, Joey Sturgis has contributed. We've been super psyched to have both of you guys on. Uh, and I just want to thank you guys for, for having me on. I've really been, honestly, enjoying the podcast. I'm listening to the year-old episodes uh, <laughs> at double speed uh, and uh, trying to catch up with as many of them uh, as I can because I'm really digging it. I love the values you guys have and I love what you're doing. Well, thanks so much for coming on, man. We love your site and just happy to be connecting like this. Absolutely. Thank you. Right back at you. The Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast is brought to you by Focal Audio, the world's reference speaker. For over 30 years, Focal has been designing and manufacturing loudspeakers for the home, speaker drivers for cars, studio monitors for recording studios, and premium quality headphones. Visit Focal.com for more information. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit urm.academy slash podcast and subscribe to Today.